Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. Wow, good to see you guys here. Hey, my name is Matt Altfeltis. I'm one of the pastors here at Lighthouse, and uh, let me out of my cage this morning, get a chance to bring God's Word uh, to you here. So if you're here in the house, welcome. If you're online joining us, a special welcome to you, Bluffton, Fostoria launch team. Uh, glad that you are all joining us here <clears throat> Uh, and, and, and being a part of what we do here at Lighthouse. And just want to encourage you, if you are watching online, that, uh, hey, we'd love to meet you in person, too. And so we want to invite you to be here. So we look forward to that chance to meet you. Grab your Bibles, turn over to Isaiah 59 uh, this morning as we continue in this series, God of the Promise. <clears throat> uh, and if you're using a device, you can click over there on your device to Isaiah 59. When I was 20 years old, many, 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 many years ago, uh, I, I worked at a church. I was actually, I was attending a church in Phoenix, Arizona. Has anybody here actually ever been to Phoenix? Yeah, that's one way. A few of you have, a few, not very many. Uh, it's a really hot place, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a very different kind of heat than here because it's very dry. Uh, but I was uh, working at, I was attending a church in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was in college, and I was volunteering as a part of the youth ministry team uh, there at this church. <clears throat> And I was, I was at the time, I was studying at a local Bible college to be a pastor um, as well. So I was doing a bunch of things at one time. And during that first year, I was at this church. The youth pastor I was working under uh, left his role, um, and the senior pastor called me up and said, Hey, Matt, I'd like to, to buy you lunch. Great, lunch is good. I'm a college kid. Anytime someone wants to give me free food, that's a good thing, right? So, uh, so I, I went and I met him, and I didn't know this guy all that well at this point. I didn't even know uh, that, the, that the previous guy was leaving it. I had no clue this was even happening. So I met this guy, Steve, uh, for lunch, and we're, we're there, and uh, we're having this conversation. We spent the first time just kind of getting to know each other. And then we hit that point in the conversation. Do you know that awkward moment when someone's called you for a meeting, and so Suddenly, there's that pause, and you know that the real reason you're there is about to come up. So that awkward moment hit, and it wasn't, you know, for him to come and try to try to spell out to me the uh, the benefits of putting pineapple on the pizza that he ordered. By the way, it's a crime. Don't do it. It's not not a good thing. I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend that at all. Um, but I sat there in that moment, and Steve said to me, his name was Steve. Steve said to me, he said, Matt. You may not know this yet, but Reed is leaving uh, the role of youth pastor effective immediately. And uh, in that moment, I began to kind of get what was going on. It kind of hit me what was coming. And I remember how weird it felt uh, in that moment for me. And I watched Steve across the table, and uh, um, here's basically what he said. He said, Matt, I've been, I've been uh, uh, watching you. And I know that you're studying to be a pastor and that you're considering youth ministry as your path. And with Reed uh, leaving, would you be interested in the role? Now, I wish that Steve had stopped there, but he didn't. Uh, he had something else. In fact, there are five words he used after that that have haunted me uh, most of the rest of my life. And these are the words. He said, you are better than nothing. And I sat at the table there and I thought, wow, that's, uh, thanks, man. I appreciate the huge vote of confidence. And 
my guess is that uh, for him, he was actually just saying that, hey, I recognize that, that for you, uh, what's happening in your life right now in, in our church, we're in an inner city church in Phoenix, Arizona, a, town called, a, a community called Sunny Slope, and it was an area that wasn't a safe neighborhood, and he's going, we don't exactly have a lot of people knocking down our doors to walk in and say, hey, we'd like to serve in youth ministry uh, in, this, in this context here, but you're a warm body, you're young, you've got a lot of energy and probably time in your hand, why not? You're better than nothing. And uh, I guess I was. And in the end, I took the job without much of a thought. I remember saying, yeah, I guess I can do that. And what really stood out in that moment was the next thing that he said. And here's what he said. He said, I can't promise you much money in pay. I can't promise you much money, if any money, to do things with in ministry, ministry budget. Can't do that. I can't promise you a place to meet. I can't promise that you'll have any help. <laughs> He's painting a pretty bleak picture. You're better than nothing, and I can't give you anything. Uh, and in the end, he said, I can't even promise your safety. Again, it was an inner city uh, community, and it wasn't safe. There was a lot of nefarious things that were happening around there. But he said this, I can tell you that I have your back. I promise you that. I got your back. And I'll be there for you to support you, to walk alongside you, to mentor you, to do whatever it is that I can do to help you. And I can tell you that I experienced all of that. I experienced no money. <laughs> I experienced plenty of moments where it was not safe. But I experienced Steve fulfilling his promise that said, I've got your back. You're better than nothing and I've got your back. Steve had my back. And I thought about that. And I was, struck by this, by, I was struck by his promise that I'm going to be challenged. And actually, it's going to be tough and even impossible at times, but I'm here. Um, and it's God's promise to us too, isn't it? The promise of the Christian life is not something that necessarily we stand out and go, it's going to be easy, easy, easy. In fact, I would say my experience has been that it's actually gotten tougher in some ways because suddenly when I put my faith in God, there's a spiritual battle that's happening for my soul, for my life at that, at that time. But God keeps his promises beyond that. He does not break his promises. Where do we see God's promises and where do we see him keep them? Maybe it's, uh, it happens in the spaces we don't expect. The character of God is faithful. And when God keeps his promises, he will always keep it now and forever. And sometimes the actual promise may surprise you. The promise that he chooses to keep may, may surprise you because it may not look like the thing that you're hoping it looks like. And sometimes that's, for, that's true in life as well. It's good when promises come through in a relationship. It's good when promises come through uh, in a job, when you're promised something and you get what you have. But in the end, there's other promises that are not so good, like, going, like coming along in a speed limit and the consequences of getting caught going too fast. Or missing the wrong on the ladder on your way up. There are consequences of that as well. It's not necessarily a good thing with, with, the, with those things. But I can say that it's always good with God because his promises and he will and always will. In fact, I would say it a little more firmly and say he cannot not fulfill his promises. He must. And here's why. It's because it is in his character to fulfill them. We're continuing in the series, God of the Promise, as we continue through. I said we're in Isaiah 59 today, and if you haven't turned over there, do it with me. But for me, the concept of kept promises, um, it's a pretty difficult one. It's not something that comes easy for me. There's been lots of times in my life when promises uh, have not been kept. And my guess is that many of you in this room can say, I identify with that. 
I identify with the fact that it's been, it's been broken many, many times. And despite that, I can tell you that I know that God makes promises and he always keeps them. And before we get into these verses, let me give you some background what it leads up to in these verses. I think it's fair to say that the people of Israel had multiple sides. And some might say they were pretty, they were pretty two-faced. They had multiple sides of what it was that they did. They appeared, uh, the appearance of doing things right, but they really just had a false front of doing something that they thought maybe that was wanted of, of them. So Isaiah, throughout this book of Isaiah, is challenging these people to live for God all the time with all their hearts, not just for the sake of appearances. If you jump back one chapter to chapter 58, you'll actually see uh, where, where it not really begins, but it actually gives a picture of this very thing happening, and he's talking about fasting leading into this here. He's talking about, talking about fasting, and they would make a big profession of faith and talk of a big game in the hopes that God would be pleased with them. But when God told them that it was all just worthless behavior, they chose to get upset with God. If you've read 58, you know that there was this promise that they said, God, we're going to do it, and they put it out there, and they did it, and God, in the end, just said, yeah, it's all worthless. It's all worthless. And they were, they were, then they were angry with God um, because of that. So God told them why, and he said it was actually because they had made it about them. Sure, you're fasting, but your heart's in the wrong place. You're not doing it with the proper motives. You're not doing it in a way that is actually honoring to me. So the question is, where is your heart? Where's the humility? Where is truly what's behind what's happening here? So in Isaiah 58, they got instructions on how to do it, and even they were told the benefits and the blessings of doing it the way that honors God. And then hit into chapter 59, and here's where it starts in 59. If you look at verses 1 and 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not, is, is not shortened. It cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your, but, your, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his, his face from you so that he does not hear. I know up on the screen it was a New Living Translation, a little bit different, different translation, but I want you to see here that the shift in talking about behavior to talking about the heart. And I want you to understand the difference. And if there's nothing you get from this morning, I want you to hear that that there's a shift between behavior and the heart. And I think God is truly after the heart in this too. My wife and I have two kids, and we discovered early in our parenting journey that my kids would change their behavior to make mom and dad happy. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They would change their behavior to make mom and dad happy, and so we'd get them to stop doing something or to start doing something, for that matter, and life would be good for a little while, but then we'd see a sign of grumbling and anger or impatience and then uh, for what they were doing. And we started to see that just addressing, so we were just addressing one thing and not the main thing. We were addressing the behavior. We weren't looking at the heart of what it was. And let me try to say it like I see the Israelites saying it here. God, what is wrong with you? Israelites asking God, what is wrong with you? Where are you? We are doing all these things for you. We're doing all these things that we think you want, all the things that we think you like, and yet at the same time, you don't seem to be here. Jeremiah 17 describes the human heart this way. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The shift of focus made all the difference in the world, and my kids are now perfect, 
because they understand. We understand we're addressing their hearts, and this is what was going on here. Isaiah nails it in verses 1 and 2 when he starts to list off how they are missing the mark. And he puts up, and he put, he puts up, put us up where we are today in verse 12, in verse 59. And we read this starting in verse 12. It says this. It says, for our sins are piled up before God and testify against us. Yes, we know that we are sinners. How about that word piled up? <laughs> you ever thought about your sins as a pile before, before God? We know that we've rebelled and have denied the Lord. We have turned our back on our God. We know how unfair and oppressive we have been, carefully planning our deceitful lies. Our courts oppose the righteous, and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets, and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed, so he himself stepped in and saved them with his strong arm, and his justice sustained them. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed a helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes, and he will pay them back even to the ends of the earth. In the West, people respect the name of the Lord. In the East, they will glorify him, for he will come like a raging flood tide driven by the breath of the Lord. The Redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back those in Israel who have turned from their sin, says the Lord. And this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit will not leave them, and neither will these words I have given you. They will be on your lips and on the lips of your children and your children's children forever. I and the Lord have spoken. In the next few minutes, I want, I want to show you three things in here, three points, three truths from this passage that are either true of us or true of God. And I hope you'll understand as we read, as we go through these things, hope you begin to see actually what the value is and what it is that we can see the difference between us and God in these things. Because it begins in verse 12 where it talks about this pile of sin. Because first of all, we are profoundly sinful. We are profoundly sinful people. The New Living Translation says our sins are piled up before God and it testifies against us. Anytime we take control of our lives and place ourselves in the role of leading, that's sin. That's sin. It's as simple as that. And the depth of what that means is actually pretty profound. And there are numerous instances in Scripture of how people did exactly that. They chose to try to control their lives. And I'm not just talking about people that are far from God, but even people that were Jesus' disciples. We're talking about people that were followers of God and said that they were following him. These are the people that were doing this, people that were following, they're being mentored by a rabbi or a religious leader. And here's why it's a problem. When we choose to pursue, pursue self-leadership, we're making another choice in the same moment too, and it's to reject God's leadership, to reject God's leadership. And I got to tell you that there's a problem with that because we do those two things, and those two things are, well, they're opposites. They can't coexist. They can't coexist. There's no room for us when God is in control, and there's no room for God when we're in control. 
The reason is that the reason is that we will always mess it up because of our sinfulness, because of the brokenness in our world, in our lives. And God will always get it right because God is holy. He always gets it right. And anytime I take control of my life, I will find a way to shipwreck it. And when God is in control, he always finds a way to free me from the bondage of my sin. And if you know what that freedom feels like, that freedom is actually something all of a sudden just feels like I know that the weight of my sin and the weight of what I'm doing has been lifted off of my shoulder. And God says, I've got this. We always mess it up, but God always gets it right. And this is not... Uh, a pretty, these are not pretty little things. It's a complete list of brokenness in these verses here. It lists out. This verse says that our sin testifies against us. It cannot help but be seen and heard in this moment. And the legal term of this is to say that the behavior is testimony and it is tattling about what we know is going on in us. Your behavior is tattling of what's truly the intent of your heart. You ever thought of it that way? Luke chapter 6 says it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, so speaks the mouth. What's truly in our heart will come out of our mouths. It will come through. What comes from your mouth is tattling of what is truly in your heart. Looking at it through the, through the list of what I said a minute ago, the issue with this is the heart, not the behavior. And if you don't like the behavior, you have to look a little deeper and see what the heart is. It's like that little brother or sister who decides that they want to make sure mom knows the truth of what that sibling did. And so they tell mom what actually happened or dad what actually happened. It's, it is good here to see the cultural point for us, but it seems to be shifting here to make a personal point. So here's the personal side of it. Let's look at it this way. Where is our trust? Where's our gaze? What is it that we are putting our trust in? What is it that we actually find ourselves looking towards? What is it that's actually truly coming through because of what we truly understand God to be in our hearts? Or maybe what we truly are in our hearts and being sinful. And if you're wondering where the behavior is coming from, check the heart. And, if you, and in recognizing the need to shift your attention, it's a good thing to recognize and even lament your sin. I think that's what's happening in chapter 59 is there's a lament of the sin. And guys, I'm, I, I, I read this passage and I go, there's a huge weight that's being dropped in this passage on you and me in this moment. But I think it's okay for us to stop every once in a while and go, you know what? This is who I am, but, well, it's not who I am. It's, it's who I was before Christ. Because Christ does not look at my sin and look at me and say, sinner. He looks at me and says, child of God. He looks at me and says, forgiven. Beginning of verse 15, it speaks of how the truth is gone. And if somebody says, says, says wrong is wrong or attacked, it's clear as you read this that there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new that we're seeing in our world today that they didn't see back then either. History that is experienced by Israel has been repeated many, many times since that and even today. These people are looking for political leaders instead of God to fix their problems. These people are being willfully blind and saw, and saw, and saw the wrong but turned a blind eye. Does that sound familiar in our world today? These people are being willfully ignorant of the truth of God. They're being willful in their suppression of the truth in spite, in, fight, in spite of the fact that they see it. And by the way, this isn't the first time that we've seen this in the Bible. 
We can go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture in Genesis where, they took, where Adam and Eve took leadership of themselves. If you look, I'm going to give you a couple verses here on the screen that you can look up on your own. But as we see it in John 12, verses 12 through 19, we see the story of Jesus on his way into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And as he come in, they were wanting to make him their king. And he's, no, I'm coming to be your Messiah. Romans 1, you can see the same pattern of, of behavior where there's people that are actually, actually doing things and they're being, are being approval or being approving of what it is they're doing and not pointing to God. In Romans 3, Paul actually quotes from Isaiah as, as, uh, as, as, as a point to speaking about how the righteous are few and far between. And I'd even suggest that this is a similar pattern for our current world. People are turning to everything and anything except towards God. And to that end, they're finding nothing but brokenness. Finding nothing but brokenness. Just so I'm clear here, the message of Isaiah wasn't just for the godless. It was actually written for people that were following and seeking after God and those that said they followed God. But here's the good news. And I got to tell you, I feel the weight of that first part. And some of you are sitting here going, man, I don't need that weight. But let me give you the good news. It comes beyond that. God keeps his promise to be faithful, even when people reject him, by taking over control, which is my second point that I want to give you. The point is that God is profoundly faithful. We are profoundly broken, but God is profoundly faithful, even when we grab control. Because it says here in this passage that the Lord looked, at it, looked, looked and was displeased to find no justice. Nobody stepped in to help the oppressed. So God stepped in with a strong arm. He loaded up for battle, and you see this imagery of the armor of God that we see in the New Testament, this imagery that steps in, and you have God that stepped in communicating strength and power. And notice that God is fighting for them. God is fighting for us. But I also want you to notice that he's fighting for us and he's profoundly faithful, even in spite of the fact that sometimes we find ourselves fighting against God. And he continues to fight for us in spite of that. So God stepped in and did what he, what, what, what he, was, what he said he was going to do. He kept his promises. He promised justice, so he fights to that end. He promises to intervene to help the oppressed, so he does. And I'll add, this is not just a promise, a promise for the past, but it's a promise for all time. I've heard it said like this, and I love this quote. It says, what God has done in the past is both a plan and a model for what he's going to do in the, in the future. But he's far too creative and too wise to do it the same way twice. In other words, God doesn't change his past faithfulness is really a future promise of what he will do with us and seeing through what he, called, what, he, what he said he would do. And he keeps his promises. God doesn't keep his promise. God, God does keep his promise to the faithful. And my final point this morning is this, is that God keeps his promises to all generations. We are profoundly sinful and broken. God is profoundly just. God is profoundly truthful. And then he also keeps his promises beyond that. I want to kind of make this point uh, in this by telling you a story. Um, in, the, in the Old Testament, in the book of First and Second Samuel, there's a little-known character there, um, and his name is Mephibosheth. And maybe you can't, never even heard the name, and you're going, Matt, you're talking a different language, and no, I'm not. It's, it's, it's English transliteration from Hebrew, but his name is Mephibosheth. 
And Mephibosheth was uh, a very unique character. In fact, there's only just a few verses in the Old Testament to tell the story of of who he was, but he's probably uh, a favorite character of mine. Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul. Saul was the king of Israel uh, at, at a time, and he had, he had this, he, and he was actually he actually did a terrible job in a lot of ways, and lost his his position as king when he uh, when he died, and David uh, eventually uh, took over. But but Saul also had a son. His name was Jonathan. David and Jonathan were like best buds. If you guys know the stories of David and Jonathan, but Jonathan was Mephibosheth's dad. So you have these two characters in there, David, you have Jonathan, I mean, these, these characters, David, you have Jonathan, you have Saul, and this guy, Mephibosheth. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we have Saul and Jonathan that are father and son, and they're in battle, and they're, they're both killed in battle. I'm not just trying to drop, make light of that at all, but it tells us here that Jonathan had to have this son, Mephibosheth. So with Saul and Jonathan out of the picture, the next heir to the throne rightfully would have been Mephibosheth, who's five years old. Saul had done it so wrong for so long, and David stepped in and became the king and took over, took over ruling Israel uh, in, in that time. And, and, and so what, ha- what would have happened is with David, David stepping in, what would have happened is the new king would have actually stepped in and started to actually just eradicate the previous king's family because he didn't want anybody to actually be able to, to, to contest him for the throne. So Jonathan's family heard of David taking over the throne, and so they began, they tried to flee and in 1 Samuel chapter 9, it speaks of what, of what actually happened when, when they actually Jonathan's family was afraid of David, and although David didn't have any plan to kill them, they actually got up to flee and started to run. And the nurse grabbed five-year-old Mephibosheth and picked him up, and it doesn't give us a lot of details about what happened, but it says that he actually took Mephibosheth and dropped Mephibosheth, or he fell or something like that, and it sounds like he probably broke his feet or broke his legs or was somehow completely broken in this moment. As he fell. But here's the thing. Like I already said, David and Jonathan were very close. They were brothers. Too much to tell. The, 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 there's, too much, there's too much story to tell the whole thing. But earlier in the story, their friendship was tested. And it was a day when David learned what, that Saul wanted to kill him. Jonathan promised to save David, but he wanted a, a favor in return. He asked that he protect his family and preserve his heritage. That was the promise he made to him in the end. And so David had no intent to actually kill Mephibosheth, but he was actually going to try to restore and actually bring him back in. And after Jonathan and Saul were killed, 2 Samuel 9 tells a story story of how David found him and called him to his house. Can you imagine the fear that Mephibosheth must have been feeling in that moment? This is David the king, and he found me, and he probably wants to kill me. So he showed up at, the, at David's house, and he walks, he walks in, and David looks at him, and he says, son. And he tells him, don't be afraid. David's reaction is very different than he expected. He called him son, and he calmed his fears and said, I don't want you to be afraid. Similarly, the Bible says that children of God, we have been adopted into God's family for eternity, broken by a fall, restored to what God has called us to do, and the God of the promise sees it through in the end. The story of Mephibosheth basically reads like this. He was born into royalty, broken by the fall, found by the king, brought into the place he was meant to be. He was made right even though he was profoundly broken. He was made right before a good king, And that's true of us. 
Guys, can I tell you that that's the gospel? <laughs> that's the gospel. The guy who keeps a promise and says, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done in the past. The truth is, is that I recognize you for what it is that you are. I recognize you for what it is that I do. And the God who keeps his promises, we are profoundly broken. God is profoundly good. And this good God keeps his promises to all generations. What do we do with this? How do we handle this in the world today? What are we inviting you to do? And I want you to listen very carefully to what the Holy Spirit might be telling you uh, this morning through this. But if you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus as your forgiver and leader, maybe today's the day that you need to respond. It doesn't matter if, you're, if there's, if there's a, a sinfulness in your life. It doesn't really matter. God doesn't see it that way because first, there's a clear teaching in this passage today, but also throughout Scripture that sin, about sin, and how we contend towards taking control of our lives and leaving God in the rearview mirror. Can I tell you too that it doesn't matter what your sin is? All of it points to us trying to be leader of our own life and control instead of trusting God to guide us. And I think sometimes we create a hierarchy of badness. And even Isaiah, we can clearly see that God is saying, you know what? It all stinks. <laughs> it's all bad. It doesn't matter what you've done, if you've done it once or a thousand times, God calls it sin. And this sin separates you from God. Which leads us to the second, the next thing, which is that because of sin, we are unable to get near God. We can't get near God because of sin. Israel was doing all kinds of things as we read in this passage to try to please God and get his attention. But that comes, but, but, but and we, what we want is, was for them to humbly, God wants us to humbly and honestly come before him and admit that we can't do anything to make him love us anymore, any less. So stop striving. Stop trying to be a better person. Stop trying to think that you can actually do something to make God happy. Stop pretending that you're doing right by God when you're doing religious acts. And though somehow it makes God like you better, maybe. And because of all that, they were and are unable to get nearer to God. And by the way, this is what keeps us away from God too. It's called sin. But God made a way. You see in the Bible that he sent his son Jesus to die for the sin of the world so that we could be near to God. When Jesus died, he took on himself the payment of death for our sin. And because of that, he took on the debt, which was actually death. And when he died, he made it so that you don't have to die. Your sin, your debt has been paid by Jesus. So what's left? What's left is saying yes to him. And maybe today is the day that you can hear God speaking to you and saying yes to him is the next step for you. But if you're a Christian here today, I want to tell you that the gospel is for you too. It's so easy for us to get caught up in what it is that maybe we do. It's easier for us to get caught up in the things that we know that are wrong and not to lean into and live in God's grace. It's a reminder as you contend against sin. The gospel isn't just that you need to hear, that you need to hear when you put your faith in him for the first time. It's also the thing that you need to hear each day as you're tempted to try to please God on your own, somehow falling and taking him backwards. Remembering the gospel is the best tool that you have 
to remind you of this good God who saved you from your own brokenness. Even greater is to know that he is going to be faithful to even the generation after us. I see God's faithfulness all the time in my life, and I know that I don't deserve it. But what an amazing promise it is to know that my kids are going to experience God's faithfulness too. And God will pursue them, work in their heart, challenge them, cause them to grow. It's hard to believe that truth in light of the decay in the world around us today. It's hard to believe that the truth is actually true for me. We see people who are running away from God, and we stand as a counter to that as we swim upstream. I want to end this morning by just reminding you of a few promises that we can stand firm in today because God will keep them. Salvation is for those who put their faith in him. God promises comfort when we struggle. God promises forgiveness for our sin. And he promises that he will be near when we pray. Will you remember and embrace God's promises today? We do this every Sunday, but I'm going to ask us to close our eyes and just ask God in this moment. Lord, what are you saying to me today? just talk about prayer at Lighthouse. We actually pray. We actually believe it matters. And so this morning, we actually have prayer partners that are available. There'll be two at the front and two in the back of the room. And if you want somebody to pray with you, and maybe it's questions of faith and understanding the gospel, maybe it's just something that's happening in your life and you want somebody to pray with you. We all need prayer. It's something valuable for all of us. And so I'm going to ask that as we start this next song that maybe you'll stand up in where you are and actually go to find that person that's in front. They have a lantern around their necks as prayer partner. And you can actually find that person and pray with them. There's no shame in it. There's no guilt in praying. It's actually something we all need. But before we do, let me pray for you. Father, I pray that in this moment, you will draw everyone here that needs prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.